Welcome to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking. Each week, we invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the Cross-Border Interview Podcast featuring... First off, Paul, I want to thank you so much for doing this. I had the pleasure of reading Swords, Starships, and Superheroes. Uh, It was an amazing uh, dive into it. It took me a few days to read, and I I was able to answer the top 10 questions that you get from your fans by just reading the book. Oh, all right, great. I'm glad to hear that. Um, But I... Oh, go ahead. I don't know if you're a fan of these shows in particular. If, if you, a lot of people, younger people especially, don't even remember them. But uh, the, the the particular shows that I write about in most detail, Star Trek and Xena, are, have big cult followings, even years after they've gone off the air. In the case of Star Trek, it's continuing in, in different versions. So, um, yes, uh, I'm glad you appreciated the book, even if you don't necessarily remember all the, the shows that I write about. Oh, I remembered a few of them, and then also I remembered the ones that you started off on as well, the Mod Squad mm-hmm. as your uh, internship, and then also yes, right. Jake and the Fat Man, my father, and I used to watch that as well. So these were shows that I grew up watching, so I was diving into my childhood when reading your book. <laughs> Great. It's just that when I when I go to uh, speak to college classes, you know, nobody of, of that age, uh, college age, <laughs> they weren't born when a lot of these shows were around. So um, they still seem to appreciate my my anecdotes, but they just can't connect with the actual shows that I'm talking about. But I'm, I'm glad that you do. <laughs> so I usually start off all my interviews, which we've already gotten into, but I'll start, I'll ask my first question as always. Sure. Where does your desire to continue to write come from? In the beginning, as a kid, yeah. you mean? Where, where, did I, I, it, uh... where did it come from? Because in the book, you talk about your first foyer with Brother Philip Bergeron. But where did the desire to write? Did you talk about how he was more mm-hmm. about uh, the film actual aspects and how he collected script? But you talk, you don't really, uh, from what I understand, you don't talk about like the, the first moment you put pen to paper. Well, there's actually, I kick off the book with a letter to the editor that I wrote to Batman comic books in 1962. <laughs> Number uh, 150. My first, my first, yeah, my first published, uh, you know, uh, work. <laughs> it was a, like a two-line letter to the editor. Um, but um, so that I was around 10. And I would say comic books influenced me. I, I, I read those adventures and I, I kind of, oh, I, I don't know. I remember writing a, a short uh, a Thor. Uh, Marvel Comics at Thor as one of their, you know, uh, heroes in the Avengers and so forth. And I I didn't know what a comic book script looked like. I didn't know that format. So I wrote it as a short story and I mailed it in to New York where Marvel <laughs> was based. And uh, of course, I got a rejection a few weeks later, but a nice complimentary letter from Stan Lee, the, the head of Marvel himself, um, encouraged me, encouraging me to, to continue uh, to writing and um, and I did and then in in high so I wrote short stories that kind of thing um, and in high school which was a Catholic high school LaSalle in Providence Rhode Island um, I had a one of the brothers uh, had a, a course it was kind of a film appreciation course and he had 
copies of movie scripts, which uh, I was now seeing for the first time. And the format of a script, which is nothing like a novel, the <laughs> format of a script is, you know, it lays out uh, the, exactly what the scene is, uh, where you are, whether it's day or night, and the characters in the scene, and then dialogue. It's uh, very simple. And I, I immediately glommed onto that, and I started um, writing, sending away for television scripts for my favorite shows. And uh, that's, by that time, I was um, in high school. So I'd say around 16, I started writing scripts, turning my attention to writing scripts. And um, of course, I could, I kind of quickly realized you had to be in, in L.A. to have a career. But I was sending material long distance from Providence and, uh, you know, again, getting some encouraging feedback. So... So the short answer is I was around between 10 and 16 is when I really became serious about it. I thought it's something I can have a career at. You you talked about just there briefly about how you were writing scripts as you were sending away for scripts. What were some of the shows at that time that you were writing about that you said, you know what, I'm going to try my hand at this show or I'm going to try my hand at making it my make making my own show in some sense. Well, I was writing. Well, first of all, I read there was a magazine called Writer's Digest, and they had a monthly column about uh, writing for television. And they interviewed uh, producers of popular TV shows at the time, like Bonanza. And um, some of those shows had bought what's called spec scripts, speculative scripts that someone would write and send in. You can't do it now because the, the lawyers won't allow a producer to read a script for their own show. But in those days, it, it was possible. It was still rare, but it was possible. So um, I started uh, writing. Uh, there was a, an anthology series long running called Death Valley Days. And uh, Ronald Reagan had been the host for a few years. The show had been on the air for something like 18 years. And they, in, in Writer's Digest, the um, story editor for that uh, show, uh, said that they were wide open to submissions. So I went to the library and researched stories of the Old West and uh, wrote them up and sent them in. And you know, one after the other, um, got rejections, of course, but very encouraging feedback. Um, they, they kind of liked my persistence. And at one point, uh, they said, uh, if I'm ever in Los Angeles, uh, drop by the office. <laughs> so I took that as an invitation, and I started planning to move to L.A. right after I graduated high school. So um, uh, the, the, those, uh, those are the type of shows I wrote uh, on spec at the time. Bonanza, Death Valley Days, uh, Mission Impossible, Mod Squad. Um, I just kept writing them, and some got read and rejected, but nicely, and others, I guess, never got read. <laughs> I just went uh, went out there, and you never heard anything about it. But I didn't have an agent, of course. I was I was on my own, so I just persevered. And those were the types of uh, shows that I wrote back then. And you, you talked about it there. You decided to move to LA. Um, this is not a thing that your mother probably wants to hear from an eighteen year old. <laughs> I'm going to move halfway across, well, all the way yeah, across nobody the country. Took, nobody, took me ser- nobody took me seriously, for one thing. But I was serious, but, uh, you know, they, they figured, oh, you know, he'll he'll give it up, he'll change his mind, he'll stay here, he'll go to Providence College or whatever. But, uh, no, I was um, I, I was just committed. <laughs> I had it in my head, and I was stubborn. And it was 1970, so it was easier to, everything was cheaper, <laughs> yes. you know, so I was able to 
put together enough money for a bus ticket. I think it was 90 some odd dollars back then. I couldn't afford to fly, but I could uh, come by Greyhound. And um, oh, oh, and I found a writing class. You know, I started researching colleges in, in Los Angeles because I just graduated high school. And um, there was one, one community college that had a, a writing course offered by Dorothy Fontana, whose name I knew from television. She had been story editor on the original Star Trek and wrote for a lot of those other shows like Bonanza. So I just, I said, oh my God, you know, I can, I can go there and take a class from this person who's actually doing what I want to do for a living. And that drove me and I, I, I bought the bus ticket and I, I moved. <laughs> Everybody tried to dissuade me or thought that I'd be back in a year or so, but uh, I stuck it out. It was certainly, I, I was not successful from the get-go, but uh, I moved here and started, you know, I went to college and took that class and uh, continued writing specs and uh, took a while, but then I finally sold one and I've never really looked back. <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing that I want to talk about because in this book, you are so honest and it comes across in so many of the chapters that you read that you struggled, right? As a freelance sure. writer, you're struggling the first moment you get to Hollywood because everyone thinks you move to Hollywood, you're going to get your first job right after, right after you step off the bus. But you struggled for a few years. Well, it was five years before I sold my first script. I, I did have an assignment earlier than that, which I talk about in the book for the animated Star Trek in 1973. And that was because of Dorothy Fontana, who I was taking that writing class from. She was a uh, associate producer on that show for the first season. So I uh, lucked into an assignment. Gene Roddenberry, you know, had, who was a creator of Star Trek, had come to uh, speak to her class. So I met him one night. He took a bunch of us out for into the House of Pancakes for coffee. Anyway, I ended up getting an assignment there, but uh, that turned into a spectacular failure. I was paid for the story, but then cut off. But I didn't know I was cut off, so I, uh, I wasn't hearing from anybody, and I was anxious to write the script. And I wrote the script, I sent it in, and then got a letter basically saying they were refusing to pay for it because I hadn't been authorized, I hadn't been given the go-ahead to write a script. So that was, you know, a professional high and then a, an incredible low because uh, the bottom fell out of that one. But I what write I find, about that. It's, what I find interesting in this story is you actually keep the letter that they send you and you publish it in the book. So you can actually I know. read the book. <laughs> like that must be, must be looking back on that. You go, wow. Like I, I kept the, the rejection letters, right? <laughs> yes, I kept Yes, I believe me. It's for years. I don't know why I kept it. I, I burned other. Uh, I burned the script itself. Uh, I can't find a copy of that. That um, it was a humiliating experience. But I did keep the letter, and now uh, suddenly, you know, by publishing it, I'm purging it. I'm getting it out of my life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I'm done with it now. I didn't really expect it. I haven't thought. I hadn't thought about that experience for years. But um, I felt, oh, you know, I have to write about the. Uh, the downs as well as the ups if I'm going to do a book. So I have to be honest. And that was a very important milestone event early on in my career, my life. And uh, although it turned out uh, badly. <laughs> and, oh, and then they, they kind of, and then in the second season, they actually did an episode that was really close to mine. Uh, Dorothy Fontana and Roddenberry had both uh, stepped off the show by then, but I never knew about it because I never watched the show because of the bad experience I had. So some other writer 
well, I think it was somebody's pen name. It just seems to be a writer who didn't really exist. He had no other credits. Did an episode that was very similar to mine, which I wasn't even aware of for years. It's the kind of thing that I uh, could have had the Writers Guild get involved with, but uh, this uh, animated Star Trek was not a Writers Guild uh, signatory show, So, and I wasn't a Guild member then anyway, so I didn't have that uh, resource to fall back on. So all in all, a pretty uh, discouraging experience uh, to get cut off and then find then find out years later that they did the story anyway, and I got no credit for it. But it's and all in the book. <laughs> exactly. It's all in the book, and I, I recommend anyone to pick it up because it is an honest read about a person who has gone through some troubling times and, like like you said, who was beat down by one of the biggest names in production in, in television history gene roddenberry and to just get up after that and say you know what i'm going to still do it so that moment of defeat did was there any moment in your mind that said you know what i need to check in because you do talk about how you know people who did do that right after that first uh, initial major defeat they walk away was there any moment at that time you said you know what i'm gonna just keep on doing this well i um yes Yes and no. I mean, <laughs> I was committed. I, I felt that, I mean, the script I wrote, and I don't think anybody read it. They refused to read it because, as I say, they hadn't authorized, uh, they had not given me the green light to write it. But I felt it was a good script. I, I, I had confidence in my own ability. You know what I'm saying? So even though it was a, a very humiliating experience, uh, and I was discouraged, certainly, um, but never to the point of giving up and going back to Providence. I, I wouldn't have known what to do with my life if I'd gone there. <laughs> so I stayed here and I kept uh, writing specs while having other jobs, including a night job as a security guard at a movie studio where I could write on the job all night long. And I just kept at it. I had a few other setbacks, but... Um yeah, I mean, everybody has setbacks, right? Like, as you say, nobody steps off the bus and <laughs> gets their first job. Yeah. But uh, and that's where the story picks up, because you, you talk about your first writing job, right? You're the streets of San Francisco. Right. right. That, you, that you, was you, the first. Uh, you're right. That was also a spec script that I sold and uh, my first professional assignment. And then from there on, I work started picking up. That was in 1975. <laughs> October, wait a minute, October 15th, 1975. Oh, that was, uh, that's today, right? Serendipitous. I'll never, I'll never forget that date because there that you... was the day that I sold it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> looking back on that, because as someone who was in the television industry as well, but as a newscaster, the first moment something of mine got on air, I called everyone under the bus <laughs> and I got them to watch the newscast that night and say, I will be on right. for two minutes, but it's going to be two minutes where I'm going to be the center of attention on this news channel. Right. Did you do that Boy, with Streets sure. of San Francisco? <laughs> Well, then let me back up. I did that with the Star Trek animated. I told people that I was writing this, that it was an official assignment, that it was going to happen. And then when it didn't happen, I had to tuck my tail between my legs and call all my relatives and say, well, hold on, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not happening after all. And with Streets of San Francisco, yes. I, I mean, I felt when it first happened, when, when I found out that I'd sold a script and they 
they shot it like a week later, so it was very fast. But I, at first, I didn't want to tell people in case something happened and it didn't end up shooting after all. But it was very quick, and then I then I was able to tell people and all my relatives, and then it was on the air three months to the day after that. So, <laughs> oh yeah, I was very uh, excited to, to tell everybody back in Providence and my former teachers and uh, all the aunts and uncles and cousins, um, and everybody watched. Did your mother finally sigh a sense of relief that her son was actually doing what she he, he wanted to do and was actually <laughs> making a career out of it? Oh, I'm sure. And uh, yes. And then uh, then the, then she didn't have to send little care packages as, as often, and <laughs> you know, because I, I, I wasn't making much money during those years, just barely enough to, to scrape by. So, every, you know, an additional five or ten dollars in an envelope uh, every week or so was uh, was a godsend. So, yes, I was finally uh, I was finally making it on my own. So. Um, in By the, the way, though, let me add one thing about the Star Trek experience with the animated thing. Is, as as um, badly as that turned out, I did end up writing years later for the various other Star Trek shows, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. So all that is in the book. Those were, you know, professional assignments, and the, the, those worked out. And uh, so I did end up having a trajectory from that animated Star Trek to uh, having a little bit more success in uh, freelancing the various treks that came years later. And and I've got to ask the question to follow up on that then is, did you feel, was it nerve wracking writing again for Star Trek for Gene Roddenberry? Because you talked about uh, Next Generation and he was involved with it for the first few seasons. Yeah, but he was was gone. But by the time I got involved, uh, Mike Piller had taken over the show. Gene was still living, but he was no longer involved at all. So I never had another run in with him. But was it nerve wracking though? Because you had you had this bad experience for writing the first one, and now you're coming back to try and make it mm-hmm. again. But it, is it going to go wrong? Is it going to go right? Like you can't judge it until you actually send in that spec, right? Uh, well, well, yes, but I wasn't. I was not writing those later Star Treks on spec. Those were assignments. I was called in. Mike Piller, I'd worked with on another show, Simon and Simon. So we were friends. He called me in. So, so no, there was no. Um, you knew that it was going to be really on no the air. Con- yeah, there was no connection really in my mind between the animated thing and uh, the the next gen and the new versions that came in the uh, the late eighties into the nineties. So no, there was uh, that was a, a positive experience. I did various work on various episodes for rewrite, rewriting other writers and so forth. Some of it I I did not get on screen credit for, but other episodes I did. So um, I had a combination of I was never on staff at any of those shows. I was always freelance, but I ended up doing working on half a dozen of them so i so i'm a, now a star trek writer and i can <laughs> that's in the title of my book so anybody interested in hearing about those shows i i have some anecdotes to, to tell about those you you certainly do um and during that phase between uh, Streets of San Francisco to Star Trek, you had a long line of shows that were both uh, in spec and then also on assignment as well, uh, including Jake and the Fat Man, uh, Crazy Like a Fox, Superboy. You had Simon and Simon, Barnaby Jones. Uh, I, I want you to take me through the process of 
pitching a story as a freelance writer, pitching a story to a potential uh, client that you're going to, you want to write for and you say, okay, what's the first step that you do? Is it, is it, do you, do you watch every single episode that's aired and say, okay, I need to watch just to make sure I've got the tone of this character, right? This tone of that character, right? Or do you sure. do it more of a uh, open ended, you know what, I'm going to watch one episode. So that way I'm not getting into a rut of what they want and maybe giving them something that they might not have thought of. No. Well, well, uh, the answer is uh, sometimes the shows weren't on the air yet. There were brand new shows that made a pilot. So there was nothing for me to watch. <laughs> in mm. some cases, maybe just a pilot script to read because the pilot hadn't even been shot yet. But in the case of shows like Streets of San Francisco and Barnaby Jones, they they had already been on the air for four or five years each before I. Uh, so, yes, the answer is um, if generally, well, I would express interest to in my agent when I finally got an agent, <laughs> the guy who got my street suspect into the hands of the producers over there. And uh, so my agent would set up meetings. I would say, uh, what about this show? I'm interested in Barnaby Jones. And it's from the same production company, Quinn Martin, that uh, made Streets of San Francisco. So uh, the agent would call the producer of uh, Barnaby and set up an appointment. And so, all right, you're going to go in next Tuesday. And and, uh, so I would go in and you you come up with six stories, half a dozen stories. So I'm already familiar with the series, uh, or I wouldn't have expressed interested in the first place and um, you cram you cram as much you, what you want to do you want to come in with six original stories so you don't want to repeat episodes they did before nowadays you can go on the internet and get, you know get a log line of all the the storylines that, that a given show has done in the case of a show a long-running show like NCIS they've done over 400 episodes now so good luck trying to come up with something new but um, in those days uh, I guess I'd rely on old TV guide log lines to uh, to brush up. Anyway, I would then have the meeting. You go into the and you pitch the half dozen stories. And in the case of Barnaby, I I got one. <laughs> so <laughs> that was actually I did a second streets also, which was a, an assignment. I pitched stories, and but the show was canceled uh, uh, the next year or so. That uh, that second episode never got made. But then on Barnaby, uh, you, you pitch, the freelancer goes in and pitches stories, and the producer commits to one, and then they. We'll get back to you. So they take a few days uh, to run it by the network or, or the executive producer, get a, get a go ahead. And then you called in again for to work out the details of the story. And then the, then the writer goes off and writes an outline. And then, then, then eventually probably a rewriter or two of that outline. And then eventually you go to script. And again, another uh, rewrite. And then you're... Then you're done. Then they take the script, and if they if they need to make any further changes, they do that in house. So that was the process for years for a freelance writer um, writing the kind of shows that I was doing. I, I was always in the one hour. Oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was always in the one hour um, drama area. Uh, comedy shows, I, I mean, I wasn't interested in sitcoms, so I never did half hour shows. Those tended to be uh, staff written in those days, so there weren't as many openings for freelancers, but there, was, there were some. Nowadays, it's, there, are no, there is no freelance market. <laughs> All shows have large staffs, and uh, you're either on staff or you're, you're nowhere. So the, the idea of, living, of making a living going from show to show as a television freelance writer 
was a, a you know an achievable dream in the 1970s and into the 80s and even the 90s. Uh, it's just a different situation nowadays. I couldn't do, I couldn't do the same thing I did um, if I was stepping off the bus today. I might be lucky enough to get on staff at a show, but then you'd be stuck on that show for a year or longer. Um, that kind you of didn't talk about to- that. You do talk about that in the sh- in the book as well, because you say because you talk about how freelance journalists, uh, freelance uh, freelance writers, are sort of becoming non-existent because there aren't that many spots for shows to open up to allow freelance writers the ability to go in and actually write a story for a potential series. Do you ever see a day that that might come back where more spots would be open to allow freelance writers to come in and actually write for their uh, for potential uh, TV shows? No, I don't think it's going backwards. The other factor uh, to consider is that shows are, are heavily serialized now. So um, they have ongoing story arcs. Um, so how can a freelance writer predict what did you pitch episodes to be on the air six months from now if on, a, on a show like Game of Thrones or something, you know, <laughs> you can't, you, you simply can't. There are still network shows that are self-contained, which was uh, murder mysteries that are solved within an hour. Um, but those don't use freelance writers either. It's just the, the way it's become and it's the way the networks are used to writing. They, they And when they do hire... There are now diversity uh, rules. So CBS, uh, I mean, I almost got an assignment uh, uh, a year ago on a long-running show where I had worked for the executive producers uh, many times in the past, and they have one freelance opening per year. And um, and I pitched, and it, everything seemed uh, like a go. And then at the last minute, the network stepped in and insisted on a what they call a diversity hire, um, a woman or a, a minority writer. And of course, that should have been the case years ago. But um, I was frozen out simply because I didn't fit those categories. Well, you even say in your book, you were a white man with a white beard. (laughs) (laughs) I was a white guy and over 55. That's another uh, issue. (laughs) Older writers, uh, that's a whole whole different thing. They don't want older writers either. They want young, they they want the young up and comers. So when you were staff writing for some of these shows and one in particular mm-hmm. that I want to talk about is yet again, the title of your book, Hercules and Xena, which uh, most people in the nineties would uh, know because it was one of the most popular shows, if not the most popular show in uh, Canada. Um, would you be looking for freelance writers or was that show uh, a staff show as well? No, but the, uh, those shows did use uh, freelancers. It was still, I mean, that's how I got in, in the first place, I was a freelance. Uh, did some freelance Xena episodes, and then and then I did a freelance Hercules, and then segued into staff on Hercules. Um, by the way, you mentioned the title of the book. Is, is the title is Swords, Starships, and Superheroes, and then the publishers insisted on the words Star Trek, Xena, and Hercules being in the, somewhere in the title because people do Google searches of their favorite subjects to determine what books to buy. So that the title got really long, and the subtitle is a TV writer's life scripting the stories of heroes wow (laughs) it's a it's a mouthful and i apologize for that hey no we will make sure that we link us a link on the uh, on the episode notes to the actual way a place where you can buy it um yeah jacobs brown is the publisher and they you can buy the book off their website jacobs brown media group.com yeah we'll make sure that we link that in the show notes 
Swords, Starships, and Superheroes is the official title, and then from Star Trek to Xena to Hercules. But yes, the answer is uh, the, we, they did use freelancers at Xena and Hercules, and that's how I got in the door in the first place. It used to be, you know, that you would a writer would write a freelance script, and if that worked out, then they would bring you on staff because hey, this this person can write our show. Let's bring him or her onto staff. Nowadays, they hire. They didn't write the show first, so they hire people with no no background in a given show, and very often they don't work out, and they're fired after a year. You were on in the '90s three of the most popular shows: sci-fi shows, uh, sword shows, uh, Greek mythology right. shows. In right all of the 1990s. You've hit the mother load when it comes to this. You spent a good, decent amount of the book talking about those three shows. Uh, but not three shows because you were on Deep Space Nine, Next Generation, and Voyager, so five shows. Um, well, now I wrote I wrote those Star Trek's freelance. Yeah. So again, those were not staff experiences. But uh, yes, I, the answer is I went into more detail on uh, Hercules and Xena because I was behind the scenes a lot more there. I was on staff. I was a producer. Uh, I got to be producer level on Hercules, and I wrote a ton of episodes, so I had more to talk about. <laughs> so that's why that's why those sections take up so much space in the book. Which I, I'm glad it does because it gave me a peek behind what was going on in uh, in Hercules. Because there's one part of the book where Kevin Sorbo, the uh, actor who plays Hercules, mm-hmm. literally sends everyone. Uh, I think a year and a few of the other writers sends a letter saying, hey, guys, we need to uh, go back to the Bible, go back to the show Bible, because we're getting so far off of what it was. People are dead in one episode, then alive in the next episode, then dead in the next episode. Right. There's no continuity. So you give a peek, uh, an amazing peek behind the curtain of those two shows. Was it hard to like let all this out? Because sometimes you don't want to let out all the like the secrets, right? All the bad things that happen, all the good things that happened but you 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 talk in depth about what was going on behind those shows when things were going wrong when you killed off a character and the fan outroar so take me through the process of writing the book and saying okay you know what i need to be honest to the uh, the reader well as as a reader when i read other people's books that's what i want and that's what i expect and, but i now i don't feel that i'm talking smack about anybody i'm i'm not uh, you know <laughs> I, I thought Kevin Sorbo's was had a terrific relationship with the writers on the show. Although he understand we shot in New Zealand, so he was over there and we were here and on the Universal Studios lot in Hollywood. So there was was not much personal interaction, but he kept it up via fax in those days and, and telephone. So um, all the behind the scenes stuff with the producers and uh, it's what I want to read about as a writer. But I, I never set out to uh, to uh, to do gossip or anything of that nature. And I suppose the stuff I could have talked about that's not in the book, <laughs> and I didn't want to embarrass people. Or um, for me, it was an overwhelmingly positive experience. But there's politics behind the scenes of any television show, and that can become difficult to deal with um, jealousies and and so forth. So I. I and I kept all the old memos and scripts and and uh, faxes. Uh, that, that those are the kind of things that I publish in the book. To 
to the extent that I can. Now, for instance, with the faxes from Kevin Sorbo, if they were not addressed to me personally or to the writing staff, then I wasn't, you know, if he sent it to somebody else, I wasn't going to publish that. And Kevin was very helpful to me with the book. He gave me a, a, a nice interview. He's living in Florida now, so I haven't seen him lately. But uh, And uh, I did publish some of the memos that he sent, and some of them were critical of specific scripts or, or, or uh, dialogue or whatever. Um, but it's what I went through at the time and what anyone on a staff goes through. So I felt it was necessary to write that. I mean, the book, if I wasn't going to be honest with the book, why write it in the first place? No, exactly. And why write it? Why write it now? Uh, well, that, well, that's a good question. The, the, the answer is I, a couple of years ago, I read a, a book by another television writer, Nell Scovel, about her experiences, you know, as a, as being a, a woman writer in a, what was then a largely male dominated industry. And I, I thought her stories were uh, terrific and she bounced from show to show and she writes these anecdotes. And then I wrote, and then I read another book by a, a producer that I'd worked for years ago, another book about anecdotes about his career writing. And I, and it struck me that I, I can do that. And the shows that I wrote for like Star Trek and Xena have, have still have huge cult followings. So uh, originally I had the thought to write uh, how to write for sci-fi and fantasy television. That I had that idea 20 years ago. That went nowhere because I realized it's the wrong approach. There's no secret to writing those, any you know particular genre. We still adhere to the rules of dramatic storytelling. Um, but when I read those those two other writers' books about their experiences, I, that inspired me to, to do my own. So I... <laughs> I contacted, uh, I mean, I sold it to the first publisher. I contacted, I sold the pitch. So it, that was that was kind of easy. And <laughs> I called, did, I called, was it hard I, I to write? Emailed. No, not at all. Because um, you're so used to writing uh, long form in a oh, yes. uh, television style, and now you're actually writing a novel, which you said, it, <laughs> as a kid, it was hard. So was it well, hard? Well, it's not a novel. I certainly don't look at it as a novel. Uh, and I had done some magazine writing over the years, so... Uh, you know, I, I can write. It's not that I can't, didn't feel I could write anything but a script. I just never had or never had the interest to do it. But in terms of telling these anecdotes, many of these stories I would tell the, to writing classes at UCLA and they seemed to get a kick out of them. So I thought, well, maybe I should put them together in a book. And I wouldn't have done it if the publisher hadn't expressed serious interest. I wouldn't have wasted my time, I think. It took two years. Not that it took two solid years for me to write it by any means, but, you know, it was start and stop. And, and then you'd send a draft off to the to the publishers, and they'd take a couple months to get back to me. So um, it was a two year process. But uh, I think I used up all the all the stories in my career, so it'll take me another forty five years to do a sequel. Well, but, I was going to uh, say that. So. You, you write this book, you're, you're putting all these anecdotes that you had uh, going through the industry from the 70s to the 90s to today. Do you, do you look back on it and go, I had a good life so far? Oh, yes. I think uh, I, I hope I was positive in, in in all of my in everything I write about. You certainly even were. The, even the 
negative, like the, the Star Trek animated thing, I, the setbacks that I had, um, they make for, you know, years later, they make for amusing anecdotes, I think, and, and lessons that people can hopefully learn from. Uh, they were painful at the time, but it's no problem writing about them today. So I, I, my approach to the book was always positive. I, I hope I don't, you know, I didn't mean to complain about any people I worked for. There's one instance where I, I worked with a staff of a show that was short-lived, and I, I hated everything about the, the people. They, I thought they were snobs, but it was a quick freelance in and out, so I, I, didn't, I didn't want to dwell on the negatives. And I, I hope that didn't... Uh, no, help. the only part that I went, wow, he, he, like, he talked about it so openly, was uh, Alien Precinct. <laughs> Space precinct. Space, space precinct. Sorry, I apologize. I, I have the picture of the aliens in front of me for some reason, and right. I'm like, alien precinct. But that's the only time I'm like, okay, he did not enjoy that experience at all. Well, I, did, ooh, I, I didn't really mean that to come off as so negative either. It was a quick thing. The, the producers were based in England, so it was mostly over the telephone. They, they were looking to hire Star Trek writers, and um, and I had just come off of Deep Space Nine. So so I did an episode of the show. That, now, that's an example of a show that was not on the air before I wrote it. So I, did, I had no idea those those aliens were going to look like that. <laughs> Giant puppets, you know, with uh, they were anim- uh, animatronically uh, operated uh, by somebody off camera um, in a mix of human actors and these weird aliens. But it was kind of a trippy show. I mean, I don't regret it at all. Um, it just, it was difficult to write because the producers were far away and I had I hadn't seen the show, so I had nothing. It wasn't, it wasn't a production yet, you know, so I had But you also talk about the struggle that you had with them and that that's what I meant was uh, they took a script that you wrote and they didn't put your name on it, right? No, no, no. They did put my name on it, but they rewrote it heavily. And, and story by, to, that's right. Yeah, they tried to reduce me to story credit. And the Writers Guild is there to protect writers. The, the, the Writers Guild assigns credits. The producers of a show do not. So uh, you, you submit the various drafts that, that you worked on and the other writers submit their drafts and you put a statement in saying why I think I deserve credit and, and uh, ultimately the decided I deserved written by credit on that episode, even though it was heavily rewritten. But that's life. Look, that happens all the time. It didn't happen only that one time. Uh, sometimes I would rewrite other writers. <laughs> it's the nature of uh, the, the television business. Uh, one last area I want to talk about before we wrap up here is sure. you talk about in your book, the 1985 writer's strike. You also talk about this writer's strike just recently as well. Well, it's um, not that recent anymore. It's 2008, but uh, 2008. that's the most recent one. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, you talk about both writer's strikes. Um, looking back at those both with those two periods of time have writers gotten fair compensation today uh, are are writers still undervalued in the television industry um, well, undervalued, if, if you are in staff at a show, you're making a huge amount of money. Um, but um, the strikes were over specific issues at the time, like the, 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 most, the last one in 2008 was about streaming. That was just becoming a, a thing, and uh, we weren't getting a cut of that yet. Now we are. It doesn't amount to a whole lot of money, but it's something rather than nothing. And the studios would basically like to cut all residuals out for actors, directors, and writers for obvious reasons. They get to keep more money that way. Yeah. So we're always having to, the Guild is always having to fight for those rights. Um, but, uh, I mean, I think writers are valued. Um, and uh, we, of course, 
somebody always would like to, and believe me the top writers are paid you wouldn't believe the kind of money a, a showrunner would make nowadays uh, the longer you're on staff the, you get a salary bump every year it's uh, it's a license to you know you're stealing money in, in some cases you're working half the time and the other time you're working on overtime because you got a deadline um but if, if you're on staff at a show, um, you're getting a, you're getting nicely compensated. But if you're a freelancer, you're only paid for that one assignment. Uh, although the residuals do continue for years. So, and residuals are something that they fought for in the guild in the early nine, no, the mid 1960s, I think. But the writers of the, those original Star Treks in 1966, they at that time uh, residuals only paid up to six. Six episodes, six runs. Okay, and those Star Treks have have rerun individually uh, each episode. How many hundreds of times over the years? And those writers get nothing. Now we do get at least a little something um, forever, <laughs> theoretically. So the answer is, um, of course, we feel undervalued, and there's always some new issue, something that we're being uh, cut out of in terms of um, profit participation. Um, but it's a yes. The answer is a yes and no situation. Um, we're well paid when we work, <laughs> but the work gets, uh, you know, the, the assignments get fewer and farther between as the years go by. That's uh, that's life. But it's it's again, it's what you need to know for a young person if they plan to get into this business. You can't count on this on a on a, the same salary every year for forty years. You talk about that a lot as well, and you talk about how um, you consider yourself a freelance writer still. Is that true? Um, definitely. But do you not consider yourself a, just a writer, or do you actually consider yourself a freelance writer, and you, you, you enjoy doing it? Just the freelance <laughs> well, I've writer? I've always enjoyed I've always enjoyed it because I felt I could, uh, you know, you come, you do a job quickly, you make a whole a bunch of money, and then you leave, and you're on your own. You're not tied down to a show. Now, the, the, the experiences of the shows that I uh, was tied down to, so to speak, that I was on staff for, they were certainly positive experiences, despite all the <laughs> the politics and so forth. Um, but I, yes, I, I consider myself a freelance writer because you go from show to show. And now I guess I can consider myself an author because I have a published uh, book. So uh, I have a little different job title now, but still freelance, sure. There you go. Um, Paul, I, I want to give you one last chance here. Uh, pitch me the book. Why should people go out and buy this? <laughs> well, it, hopefully it's of use to young writers, uh, to anybody who thinks of, uh, you know, they might want to pursue a career in this business. And even if they have another um, job, and some people have been lawyers and doctors, and, and then they've switched careers and they become writers uh, after a while. It's always good to have, you know, that kind of life experience to, to fall back on as a writer. So hopefully young writers, I mean, I, I always loved getting my hands on anything that would tell me what a writer's life was like uh, when I was dreaming about pursuing that career. And then uh, then separately, sort of 50% uh, as a fan, the fans of these shows, Star Trek and Xena and Hercules and, and all the other shows that I write about who love all this behind the scenes stuff, I hope I have some stories that uh, you haven't heard before. <laughs> this is all my experiences. I'm not writing about the history, the overall history of any of these shows, only about my specific involvement, my stories, things that happened to me during the course 
course of working on these shows. And, and getting, starting to get nice feedback from people who are starting to read it. Well, like I said, I had the pleasure of reading it and I would recommend it to anyone, anyone, any fan of anyone, any, anyone who's a fan of the television industry, I would pick it up, even if you're not a fan of Xena, Hercules, or Star Trek, but get it. Right, right. Who, Hopefully, who, uh, yes. Who would so you be? don't have to be a, you don't have to be specifically a fan of these shows, I think, to appreciate my stories because they're universal stories. They, they can happen on any show. Exactly. Uh, Paul, once again, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate well, thank it. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. And, and uh, thank you for reading the book and uh, for giving me this chance to uh, talk about it. And like I said to my listeners, uh, the show notes, there will be links to buy the book from Jacob Brown's media group. And I re- highly recommend it. Yet again, it is uh, Sword, Starships and Superheroes from Star Trek to Xena to Hercules. Thank you very much, Paul. Once Thank again. you once Thank again you for, for listening to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you love this episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. Be sure to tune in for our next episode episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you. Bye-bye.